from Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is saxophonist Jamie Anderson. First of all, it turns out that music acts just like a virus. Yes, songs are catchy, but just how much? Well, math and statistics scientists at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada, discovered that songs spread just like infectious diseases. So they looked at the number of streams and downloads of the top 1,000 songs over a period of seven years and then compared that to the way diseases spread. So with the disease, if you come in contact with someone who's ill, then you have a certain chance of catching that disease. Songs are very similar, but the big difference is that you don't necessarily have to have physical contact. A friend could actually post a cool new song on their Instagram story then you might see it and then go try to find it. So it turns out that there's a data point that scientists use to determine the virility of an infectious disease. And that's what's known as RO. As a comparison, measles have an RO of 18. But when they compared it to music, they found out that pop had an R rating of 35, rock 129, hip hop 310, and electronica 3000, 430. That's 190 times more transmissible than measles. Now, don't confuse electronica with electronic dance music because that doesn't rate that high. Actually, it's electronica, the type that you can just sit and listen to, not get up and dance to. Now, just like diseases, transmission rates change over time. That's why something is really hot in the beginning and then it cools off the longer it goes. Same for disease, same for songs. That being said, it explains a lot for the virility online when something gets really hot and goes viral. Yes, it's usually for a short period of time, but then it cools off after a while, and that's just the nature of things. So there's probably more research coming in this direction, and so far we don't know how to utilize this data, but you can be sure that someone's going to figure that out soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, it looks like we're coming to the end of the era of the Hackintosh. Yes, that's Hackintosh with an H and not an M. What is a Hackintosh, you might say? Well, it's a PC that's running an illegal Mac operating system. The reason why is you can build a basic Mac system for a whole lot less than buying a Mac. And in certain cases, maybe have a lot more horsepower as well. The real problem with this is the average person can't do it, so it requires a lot of knowledge, plus you need a cracked operating system that thinks it's running on a Mac. But what you get is a computer that kind of does what you want for a fraction of the cost of a real Mac computer. Now there's a downside of this because every time Apple changes an operating system, it tends to break the hack, but then people kind of figure it out and then it's back up and running again. Since this is illegal, you can't go back to the factory and ask them for support. All this is changing now because Apple is moving to their own chips. 
They call it Apple Silicon. And we saw the first computers with the M1 processor come out recently. I bought one. It's the most fantastic computer I've ever had. But that doesn't mean much if you're running a Hackintosh. So it turns out that the full transition from Intel to Apple Silicon won't happen till the end of 2022, but it will happen. Not only that, Apple is apparently going to take new steps to make sure that you can't run any of their software on non-Apple hardware. Still, if you have a Hackintosh, it could work for years. And we've seen people on Hackintoshes and real Macs that are running, for example, Pro Tools 10 on System 9, and they keep on doing it because it works. The problem is anytime you try to update an app or a plugin, you just can't because it only works on that one operating system. So the end of the Hackintosh is near. I think if you're a pro, you might as well get a real Mac if that's what you want and use that to run whatever you need because the new M1 chips are outstanding and they're only going to get better. My guest this week is Saxon Woodwind player Jamie Anderson, who's played with artists like Chaka Khan, The Temptations, The Four Tops, Frankie Valley, Incognito, Robbie Williams, Rick Astley, and many more. Jamie is also heavily involved with West End Musicals, where he played on the smash hit Jersey Boys for its full nine-year run, as well as 42nd Street, Motown the Musical, Dreamgirls, Kinky Boots, Book of Mormon, among many others. He now offers some great instructional videos on his YouTube channel, as well as a full list of courses on his Get Your Sacks Together website. During the interview, we spoke about learning to excel in different genres, backing up some music legends, the ins and outs of playing in a theater pit orchestra, the many factors involving saxophone tone, and much more. I spoke with Jamie via Zoom from a studio outside of London. Well, let's go back to the beginning, Jamie. Talk about getting started in the music business and as a player. Sure. Well, uh, the first thing I did was um, I played clarinet when I was a little a nipper. I grew up in Scotland, central Scotland. I played clarinet. My mum gave me a clarinet and actually I used to just like using it as a gun, you know. <laughs> I take my clarinet out of the case. <laughs> so um, I wasn't very serious. I had a teacher at school and he used to fall asleep and start snoring. So he had to go. And my mum is a very keen musician and she played in our local amateur orchestra. She played um, uh, viola for her sins. But she also was a pianist um, and a school teacher. So she played all the piano in school and all those sort of things. But she then took me to the, the local orchestra had a, a clarinet soloist who was playing the Mozart clarinet concerto as a guest. And my mom said, oh, maybe you could teach my son because she lived locally. So I switched teachers and she was fantastic. And then after the longest time, I think I must have been 12 or 13, I, you know, became a teenager and thought clarinet was a bit rubbish. And I switched to sax. I thought this would be, you know, more fun. So I did that. But then to her, to her credit, this classical teacher realized I probably wanted to play stuff different from what she had to offer. So she recommended I... I go to this uh, a guy called Gordon Cruikshanks. He's he's now he's now dead, unfortunately. But he was a jazz musician. He lived in Edinburgh, and he had a radio show on BBC Scotland. And he was a real jazz guy. In fact, half the time he wouldn't even be there. Um, 
So we put we played in his tiny little cupboard, and he had loads of photos of Train and Bird and all these these jazz people on the wall. And he would just you'd never get away with it now. He would just like smoke in this room. I'd be there in a big fog of smoke in this <laughs> tiny closet, learning how to play sax from him. And he'd have his cigarette and he'd like jam it in one of the guards over the keys so the cigarette was just burning <laughs> as he was playing. <laughs> and he had his whole, his life, personal life was a mess. I think he'd just got divorced and he had the whole living room was covered in stacked records. So he used to give me Junior Walker and the All-Star Records and Charlie Parker and all this stuff and um, Hank Mobley because he used to get it all free for his radio show. So he got, really got me into jazz. Um but he was he was so erratic, you know, it couldn't it couldn't really last when I wanted to do grades and try and audition for music colleges and things like that. So I then got a kind of more straight down the middle teacher and um, ended up studying music at City University in London eventually. Uh, another big part of my early influence was joining the Fife Youth Jazz Orchestra, and that was run by a guy called Richard Markle, who was a big early mentor for me, fantastic jazz educator. Um, even though, you know, it was terrifying the first time I went to that band. My mum took me to this thing and, you know, one, two, three, four, and yeah. everybody roared off. There's no music. People are like making stuff up on the spot, standing up, taking solos. I was absolutely terrified, you know, the first time I went there. Yeah. Um, but of course you get used to it. And then I went to these, uh, he used to host a um, annual summer school there and some of the great teachers and players from London would come up. And um, yeah, that's when I decided, I guess I must have been 15 or so. I just came back from this summer school and I said, mom, I, I want to be a musician. <laughs> and my dad, you know, slapping his head. <laughs> okay, you what? <laughs> so yeah, that was that was kind of the early days. And then I used to play in R&B bands around local local towns and things like that in these these dives. <laughs> I was always the youngest at everything in the youth, in the youth band. I was the little short guy that came on in the you know all these um hardened scottish guys who were in these r&b bands that was this little spotty kid you know so that was my that was my kind of my starting point before i moved down to london to seek my fortune okay so i want to hear about that because i've had many originally from scotland on the show and they all talk about their pilgrimage to london and how it changed their lives yeah I'm sure it's a familiar story for for many people. I mean, some people are are obviously brought up in big metropolises. Some people are brought up in New York City or London. In which case, I'm not sure where you set your horizons. But most of us um, are from a you know a, a town or somewhere more parochial, and it just seems like the big dream to go to this big scary place where there's so many musicians and so many gigs. I mean, most of the time you become a relatively big fish in your little pond and then, you know, you, you strike out for London or in, in America, a lot of people go to New York, I'm, I'm guessing, um, to seek your fortune. And and then you're obviously a very small fish in a much bigger pond and there's so much more music to listen to. There's great clubs like Ronnie Scott's where all the best international artists would be passing through every week. And... I graduated from the Fife Youth Jazz Orchestra to the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. And so suddenly, instead of being the best kid in your town or in your region, you're like <laughs> every best kid from every region is in this, you know, in this band. And then you're the worst in the band again. 
<laughs> so, but I guess you, you sink or swim. It's not, you know, when I joined the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, this, um, it probably would be quite different these days, I reckon, but this was mid nineties. And even then it was quite cutthroat, you know, there's the chart. It's fast. Two, three, four, go play it. You've got to nail it, you know? Yeah. And if you don't, well, we're going to get the other guy until you're good enough. So that's kind of how it was. Very school of hard knocks, but in, you know, as much as being at university, I learned so much about music. It was the people I met in Nijo that really I formed, you know, the bulk of my career with. And that's, that's what it was. It was a finishing school for musicians to come through. And it's just, you know, the, the, the people who have come through that band is just a who's who of, of music in the UK and beyond really. Um, so that was my London experience, just trying to trying to keep up, trying to get better, trying to soak up as much music as I could, play with as many people as I could. It's funny you should mention about a finishing school and, and still being in touch and having other people that help you in your success, you know, from that particular band. I had the same thing at Berkeley. And there's a group of us that migrated to Los Angeles that still keep in touch. We've all gone to different areas of the music business but we've all become successful yeah but once a month we get together and we have dinner as a matter of fact tonight we're going to do it oh great so you know again lifelong friends that you wouldn't have any other way true yeah absolutely true and you don't always see these people but you know the good ones most of the people i had a great year when i was at when i did a postgraduate in uh, at the guildhall school of music and we had a fantastic year and almost all of us are still musicians but I don't know how people coming through college now, you know, they're just, it doesn't seem to be as much work and there seem to be more people all the time graduating. Yeah. Especially if, you, you know, in just purely mathematical terms, there aren't that many musicians dying compared to new ones who are constantly coming in. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way I've always looked at it is you go to college especially to figure out what you don't want to do more so than what you do want to do. Yeah, sure. And, you know, there's a lot of people that do graduate in a particular area that don't stay there. That's true, yeah. Very true, yeah. Jamie, what was your big break? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure I had a kind of, you know, come to Jesus moment in my career. Certainly joining Nijo was the big break in terms of meeting people and connections. Probably my next significant gig was joining, it was a band called the Johnny Howard Band, Johnny Howard Orchestra. He was an old school band leader, society, you know, band leader from way back in the day through way back to the 60s. And um, at the time, and especially in the 80s, he was incredibly prolific. He had um, radio broadcasts. He had a, a band full time in the casino in Monte Carlo. He had another band working continuously in London. Uh, but when I joined the band in the mid 90s, uh, it was mostly, you know, doing weddings and uh awards ceremonies in Grosvenor House in London and um, corporate functions, you know, and we were working four or five times a, a week at that point, which, you know, for me, it was fantastic, even though it was only 90 quid, about 80 or $90 a gig at the time, but times four or five every week, that was fantastic. Yeah. Because I was doing 10 quid jazz gigs, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the biggest thing that transformed me in that band was having to play any genre 
because at the time, you know, at the time I was still immature and I was thinking, I'm going to be a jazz star like Branford, you know. Yeah. But then I had to play, we literally played everything from Cab Calloway to the modern pop hits of the day. Everything was on charts. You know, there was Segway, the music never stopped. You were just like, I think it was probably a numbered pad, alphabetical or numbered, I can't remember. He just, you know, flashed the number, you had to pull out the chart, play it. It might be disco, it might be funk, it might be, you know, Sinatra. Um, and so I had to transform myself from playing all these, you know, I don't <laughs> You know how it is when die-in-the-world jazz players try and play pop? It's, it's just, there's no, you know, the, the elegance of a pop seller or the simplicity and rhythmic drive of a funk seller. They're not there. It's just, it doesn't fit. So I had to reimagine my playing, and that was a real... Um, education for me, you know, to be able to play with these guys in the band who could play anything. And there were so many funny stories as well. So that was my first regular band that I was in that was, you know, a professional band that you would play regularly. So that was the first band I played in that was a solid working professional unit where I had to be flexible and play any kind of music. And I, I just learned so much in that band, both from the musicians and on the job. And there's, there's no better way to learn than actually being on the job. Especially when you're playing that much, because then you get a chance to practice it. Yeah, definitely. I did some other good gigs along the way, but that was probably the first professional engagement that set me up for any level of success, I would say. In your CV, you have Chaka Khan and Temptations and the Four Tops and a lot of other luminaries well, uh, we played with Shaka when I was playing with Incognito. She came across to do the Lovebox Festival in London. And um, I think maybe Bluey from Incognito had met her before or played with her before. But we were then her backing band for the gig. So we rehearsed all her, all her charts. And between the brass players, we all contributed arrangements. And um, we played for this massive festival with tens of thousands of people. You can find it on YouTube. And that was... That was, you know, there's these few moments in my career, and I'm sure it's the same for you and everyone else listening, that just will never leave me. I think the first time I played in the Blue Note Club in Tokyo with, with Incog, that'll never leave me. You know, the the people, the setup, the the, the crowd, the the perfectionism of you know, the whole, the, whole or, the way they organise all the music in that club and the enthusiasm of the audience blew me away. And that Shaka Khan gig, that was another one that I'll just never forget. My kids were really small, so they were in the audience. Um, and yeah, you know, playing I'm Every Woman and all these tracks, which I've loved for so long with Shaka Khan, who was in great voice. That was, I just couldn't wipe the smile off my face. That was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah the Four Tops and the, the Temptations, we did a couple of, uh, UK tours with them doing a couple of the sort of big arenas around the country and that was also absolutely fantastic there's nothing because you know going back to the Johnny Howard thing you you spend your life playing covers and then to play those songs you know with the actual artists is nothing like it yeah absolutely amazing because you know I'm so often disappointed you're like okay we're doing uh, you know I'm every woman okay yeah it's all right and then you're doing it with Shaka Khan. It's like completely different experience. Yeah, right. Yeah, or you're doing, you know, the famous Temptations numbers with the Temptations. It's it's just an incredible feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned when you were growing up in Scotland, you played it in a lot of R and B bands, and then 
you were a jazzer, but I'm just curious because you did have those kind of chops and then you said you kind of had to get them back again. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the I think the simplest answer to that is that when I was a teenager playing pubs in R&B bands, I was just crap at R&B. <laughs> I think I was crap all around. But I guess, you know, I guess it must have gone in on on some level. Or maybe maybe somewhere like after that I turned into a jazz snob or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but the, you know, I think that comes with the territory going to music school. Yeah. There is certainly that kind of the danger of that elitism and the sort of, you know what they say about specialists, when you specialize in something, you you know more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. <laughs> yeah, well, how true, huh? So, so maybe I was just uh, specializing in that little bit too much. Um, I assume that being on the road and doing all those gigs finally got to you and you decided, let's try something else. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So at the time I think you were talking about, um, I was working in Jazzy Boys in the West End in London, which is like our version of, um, you know, um, Broadway. And I did Jersey Boys for nine years, doing eight shows a week. I mean, you were contracted to do eight shows a week. You know, sometimes you, you would obviously um, have somebody stand in for you. But And at the same time, I was playing in Incognito, and we would be touring around the world. Quite often it would be European one-nighters and we'd be flying back on a Saturday morning and I'd get back to Heathrow and have to take the tube straight to the theatre and do a matinee and an evening show. And my wife Mel was a kind of, you know, gig widow with these young kids at home screaming at bedtime and I'd just walk off the, you know, walk out the door to go to work. So it was a really, it was a really tough time. And I remember one day I was on the plane speaking to Bluey and said, oh man, you know, this is really battery mean. He said that when he had a young family, he did what I was doing and it just ended up so badly for him. He had a really challenging relationship with his son after that, who felt he was never around. And just, I think a light bulb went off in my head. So I took the tough decision to leave incognito and I did keep doing the show for a while, but then that closed. And then after that, I was freelancing around all the other West End shows, which wasn't too bad because I was at home a little bit more, but it still wasn't, you know, making me any of the money that I needed. And then somewhere, somewhere down the road, you know, not long after that, three or four years after that, the, um, you know, the zombie apocalypse hit. Mm -hmm. And so that was that. And I, I'd already been... I'd already started a YouTube channel just teaching people how to play sax. But when the when the pandemic hit, I really I focused on that a lot more. And I started sort of seeing I, I was following a guy called Graham Cochran, who's a great teacher about marketing and these sort of things. He's actually in um has a has a brand in your industry as well, is the this recording revolution it's called. He yeah. teaches people how to do sound recordings great. So I started realizing I needed to start building up a list and giving people free PDFs. And then ultimately I started making a course about how to get a great sax sound. It was called Total Tone Mastery. And uh, as we were talking about before you started recording, I found this book by Jeff Walker called Launch. I just, I just plugged in the formula and I had a really successful launch of this, my first course. And I thought, wow, this is, 
I mean, it was a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong. You know, the the passive income model is <laughs> far from passive. Yeah, yeah. But however, it went really incredibly well. Changed our fortunes overnight, and I invested in his um, kind of mastermind type group that we're both in. And um, since then, I've, I've launched another course, my second course, which is about improvising. It's called Improvisation Mastery. And that went even better than the first one. So I started thinking, well, this is fantastic because now that the gig scene has opened back up and we're at the moment, I mean, who knows what's going to happen now. But at the moment, I'm gigging again, but I, I've started thinking, well, maybe I don't have to go and drive four hours to do that gig you know, for a wedding that I don't really want to do, playing music I'm not interested in, come back exhausted, then the next day's a write-off and I'm missing all the nice social events that's, you know, a lot of our friends are starting to turn 50 now and all these 50th parties are going on and I'm like, hey, I can go to these parties now. This is great, man. <laughs> you know, I'm not yeah. going to, I'm not going to be destitute if I don't take every gig there is. So this kind of online course thing is, has um, opened up some new possibilities for me in my life. And more importantly, it's also helping so many sax enthusiasts, you know, get better and achieve their goals. So this is, you know, for me, this is much more than a, you know, get rich quick scheme. This is fantastic because there's this huge community of um, music and saxophone lovers, most of whom are know much more about you know the geeky parts of the instrument than me and mouthpieces and reeds and you know most of the time they're teaching me <laughs> yeah. i just i just do it they're the guys who are like you know uh to, well talking about it and know all the ins and outs of it but all these people love playing music and if i can help them you know play that song i do a feature on my youtube channel it's called hall of fame i, I teach people how to play these famous saxophone solos and you know I wish I had that when I was younger. Yeah. When I was learning sax, I would I was scrapping around for a little nugget of information from from anybody, you know, anybody with any kind of profile. So, for somebody to like send you a free video that goes, "Hey, you know, this is how you play the sax solo from the logical song. This is the exact fingerings and this is the notes and the rhythms." I would have been like, this is the best thing ever. And that's what, and people really appreciate it. They love it. They're like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to be able to play this. And the uh, the way I see it, my kind of USP, if you like, is that I'm on stage doing it. And most of the people I know who are on stage doing it don't generally have the time to tell other people how to do it. They're too busy doing it. So all too often you end up with the people who are not doing it teaching everybody else how to do it. Yep. And you know, there's a there's a variation in in teaching standards out there in YouTube. Which is fine. It's a you know, it's a completely open platform. That's the whole beauty of YouTube, isn't it? It's parity. There's no elitism. You, you can anyone can put a video up and say anything they want and that's wonderful. And they do. And they do. <laughs> and you get some fantastic people saying fantastic things and you get some people saying things that I don't necessarily agree with. But I pride myself on, you know, taking that firsthand stage experience and distilling it down to say to people, you know, don't worry about that. That's that's not important. You're focusing on the wrong thing. You need to do this simple thing, nice and slowly, work on that, ignore everything else. And then when you've done that, you move on to this. And I can really give people 
the smallest thing to do that will have the biggest effect, mm, if yeah. you like, the biggest multiplier. And it's been a real pleasure seeing people improve and I'm um, hoping to make more courses and who knows what for the future. Well, let me go back for a second and I want to get more into your courses, but when you started to play the Broadway style shows, no, they were broad, Broadway shows really, yeah. just not in Broadway. Was your approach different? Was there something different on those shows? Yeah, the approach is very different, yeah. So the first big difference between most of the kind of commercial or big band or whatever work you do is that as a woodwind player, you have to play different instruments, a number of different instruments. So it changes depending what show you're on and what chair you're on. But across the, the whole board, I was playing sup all the saxes, soprano, alto, tenor, baritone, normal B-flat clarinet, bass clarinet, flute and piccolo and i think you know some shows have other weirder things like alto and that beautiful alto flute but you certainly have to be able to play all those things and you not only have to be able to play those things you have to switch instantly <laughs> between them mm. so it's extremely demanding to do and because everyone in the pit is doing it eight times a week you know everyone is super blasé and you know there are lots of nice people in the West End, but you do get some hardcore people who just, you know, you know, sit there, not really give you much help. And then, you know, if something, if you make a mistake, yeah, so yeah. it's very, very difficult. It's also super clinical. You're in a dead pit. Occasionally, you know, sometimes you're not even in a pit, a traditional like Muppets pit. Sometimes you're in a pit away from the stage. You're just in a sealed room with a fluorescent light on and a little nine inch screen to see the conductor on and then there's a little dip of the hand and if you're not there to play your little solo bit on piccolo which you've just picked up you know everyone's <sighs> <laughs> so as a you know as a i think you guys call it sub we we call it a dep short for deputy it's super i mean i really had to practice so hard and and raise my level because you'll just be doing the most terrifying thing on clarinet, then pick up sax, then you're playing sort of funk solo. And then the next minute it's super quiet and you have to do these long low notes on, on flute and your flute's all cold. And <laughs> However, the one advantage you do have doing that kind of work is that you've got virtually unlimited time to prepare for it. So you can, the music's the same every night, the backing track, you know, the backing track that you're given to practice to, which is effectively a, a front of house recording of the show, is always the same. So you can practice your ass off, which is exactly what I did, which is why I'm always slightly confused about people that go in to do a show like that and, and don't know what's going on. It's like, don't do that. You have to go in there because there's so many variables to deal with. So many variables. You can practice your ass off at home and you better be 110% on that because as soon as you get into that pit, you're going to lose 40% of your performance instantly. You've got um, headphones. You've got this mixing desk in front of you, which is normally a 16-channel mixer. Who knows what that mix is going to sound like? Um, it's not going to sound like the front-of-house mix you had when you were practicing, that's for sure. Yeah. You've got the conductor on a little screen to follow. You've got you know other people to blend with to you know stay in tune. You've got, like, where's the microphone? Sometimes you have to pick up clip mics and put them there, then put them back somewhere else. Occasionally you have to go on stage and do like choreography. It's a, wow. it's a, it's a real minefield. So yeah. I had to really sharpen up, you know, to, 
to do that stuff. And I'm, I'm quite proud I did. And you must have liked it somewhat because you did it for so long. Yeah. Well, it was, you know, it was a gig. Yeah. <laughs> it was a gig. And there were plenty of West End shows with horns at the time. Although the scene changed and then there were, they sort of closed all the, the, um, the shows that I was on. I was standing in on like Dream Girls, um, uh, the Motown musical. There were these shows with loads of horns. And then suddenly we had this thing called Brexit, you know, where we left Europe and the confidence in the economy left and the show started using smaller bands. Between Brexit and uh, COVID, it's been a double sledgehammer on the head of, you know, the, the industry. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the shows are opening back up. I, I went in and did the Tina Turner musical uh, uh, short notice recently. And that's great because you get to rush down the front of the stage for it's simply the best. And you, yeah. you tear into the Edgar Winter solo. It's absolutely fantastic. The crowd goes, you know, goes wild. The, the Tina Turner says, on saxophone, Jamie Anderson, everyone goes, Rah! Yeah, yeah. And then you walk off and you go back to your invisible pit and sit there for about another <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. doing nothing you know but you do have that moment that moment of stardom you know let's come back up to your courses for a second so your first one was tonal mastery yeah total tone mastery it's called that's right i never thought and i'm just thinking about back to my experience as sax players and most of them that i've worked with have been pretty good and i just thought that the tonal mastery kind of came with the territory but it sounds like this is something that you have to work at pretty hard I'm not aware of. Yeah, right. Good, good question. When you say it came with the territory, do you mean it comes with the territory of great players that you've worked with? Yes. The better you get at your instrument, the more tonal mastery you have, which I think is kind of the same with most instruments anyway. But it's one of the biggest defining factors between a pro and a keen amateur. I'm never quite sure what to call you know my audience. Are they keen amateurs? Are they you know, enthusiasts, are they, I don't know what, I don't even know what they call themselves, but let's just say keen amateurs. The biggest difference between them and, and all the pros that I know is the sound, because the sound is key. The sound is everything. A scene is arguably more important than rhythm. I mean, even though rhythm is obviously so important, but the first thing that happens when you blow is you hear the sound. And that one note, you'll form your opinion of that player and that first note that you hear. And I'm sure that behind the faders, you must have experienced this. Yeah. If you, if you chuck up a mic and somebody goes, and you're like, oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's, you've won, you've won half the battle. But see, I always attributed that more to the instrument than the player, although I know that there's so much that's in the player's hands that they could do but apparently you're saying that there's more to it than in the way i yeah that's a it. that's a really interesting point so the rule is the closer you get to your body the more important the component is to your sound now the most important component of your sax sound is your larynx and then the shape of your mouth and your and your embouchure which is how you put the mouthpiece in your mouth and your tongue then the next most important thing is your mouthpiece and then the neck of your instrument. And then finally, way down the end of the chain is your saxophone itself. And I've demonstrated this on a, on a YouTube video that I've done and, and many others have done exactly the same thing. I'll play my Selma Mark VI and then a student Yamaha that I bought for about, let's say something like $400 
And if you want to buy a Mark VI now, you've got to be looking at $7,000 plus. So you've kind of got the Rolls-Royce and then, you know, the <laughs> the Mini, <laughs> the old trashed Mini. But when you when you back-to-back -back it, it's very difficult to tell much difference when I play it. The sound, mm. I would say 90% or maybe more, 95% comes from the person. So I could go to any of my students' instruments and pick them up if COVID didn't exist and play it. And I would sound like me pretty much. It might be a bit smaller. It might be a bit darker or brighter. There might be, you know, differences around the edges. But the sound really comes from how you envisage it in your head. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the biggest things I teach in my course. You need to, there's that old expression, if you don't know what road, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So you need to have a clear idea in your head about what you want to sound like. So as soon as I pick up a saxophone, I've got a crystal clear expectation of what is going to come out. And then my body adapts and makes that happen. So somebody that doesn't really know what they want to sound like or doesn't know what they're capable of, they could pick up my exact saxophone player and they will sound just like them with a thin sound. And so the, the instrument is surprisingly irrelevant, actually. Mm. Well, I've had the same experience. I was the musical director for Mick Taylor for a tour here. Mick Taylor, former Rolling Stone. And he would depend on fanboys that would come up to him before the gig and say, oh, I have a guitar. Use my guitar. <laughs> An amp. And he played through some absolute crap. And it always sounded like Mick Taylor. And do you think that was due to the kind of the way he'd strike the strings or how he'd have the like the tone mod the tone controls and well it's a combination of those, but you know, it's mostly in the fingers for a guitar player. Right. And maybe it's the same thing. Maybe he he had an expectation in his mind of what sonically was gonna happen and he just kind of made it happen. Yeah. By by hook or by crook. Yeah. Yeah. But it was amazing because again, there was some absolute crap that he made sound pretty darn good. And of course, all the stories about Charlie Parker, who would constantly be borrowing people's horns, you know, and yeah. sounded exactly like Charlie Parker on everything. <laughs> Let's talk about improvising, because I know that's, for any beginner on any instrument, that's one of the most difficult things to get their arms around. So how do you approach that? When was the first time for you when you played and you went, oh, I think I have this. I, I think I know where I'm going with it. In a sense of improvising, you mean? Yeah. Mm. I don't think I could nail it down to one moment, to be honest. I think it's been an evolving, slowly evolving beast, which continues to evolve every day even. So I'm not sure where I could just stick a tail on the donkey and say, that was the moment I knew. Um, because I always used to, you know, jam around on the piano and even when I was playing with clarinet, make things up and... At one point, I was even in a heavy metal band, believe it or not, playing guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Less said about that, the better, probably. <laughs> but, but we used to, you know, I used to write stuff in chess. So every instrument I've ever had, I've really kind of been interested in. I've never been the person who's like, somebody says, hey, play something. And I'm like, oh, give me some cheap music. Yeah. I've always been able to play something or other. But it does, it is strange, isn't it, that there does seem to be such a barrier for entry. I think maybe more so with people who take it up as an adult because we're so much more you know paranoid and fraught about our own abilities and 
how we look to other people. Kids, especially young kids, don't seem to have too much of a problem just jamming something and making it up. Mm. They don't judge. They don't judge what comes out as much as adults. But the way I the way I teach it is, you know, Richard Michael always taught us this this kiss acronym. Keep it simple, stupid. Mm. So I I start off my improvising course in the most simple, imaginable way that I could, which is just clapping four beats to a bar, and that's it. That's all they do. They clap four beats in a bar, and then they clap off beats, and then there's various other clapping things. And then eventually we move on to one note, and they just copy what I play. So I'll go bap, two, three, and they go bap, you know, or they clap it first. They clap it first, and then they'll sing it, bap, and then they'll play it, and there's only one note. Then they have to copy what I do, but only using one note. And then I'll play something and they have to play something back as an answer. They just have to kind of, you know, reply to it using that one note. Let me throw in a, a few more notes and we start building up, you know, it's a pentatonic scale and they'll copy the notes, they'll clap it, they'll sing it, they'll play it until, you know, you've got all five notes of the pentatonic and then they start copying some bluesy stuff and simple phrases like that. And it's this kind of repetition and learning the phrases to copy it and then responding to it and eventually just, you know, shoving them out on their own and, okay, off, off you go, you know. But I try and keep people anchored within, because what tends to happen is, you know, you start improvising and your mind just goes to mush. And before you know it, you're lost. You can't remember the notes. It's like, you're like all hot and can't get your breath. And I've been there trying to improvise with this panicky feeling. So I try and get people to anchor themselves in the pulse, in the beat, and play something that's, you know, simple, strong, in a rhythmic sense, and try and have a conversation with themselves. You know, the best improvisers, um, I think Michael Brecker is the one that comes to mind most immediately. Everything he plays is so logical. It's like he's having a conversation with himself. You know, he's... He's almost splits himself into two and he'll play something. Then he'll play it again and then he'll play it a bit different. Then he'll add in a, a different thing to contrast it and build up this kind of beautiful web of these phrases that spell out four, eight, 16 bars at a time with this beautiful logic. So I try and encourage people to get into that side of things where you you play something and then just, you know, stop playing for a minute, then play it again. You know, repetition legitimizes so it's not too overwhelming and don't, you know, people are obsessed with what scales, and, you know, you know, it's not all about that. That's a great way to do it. I don't think I've ever heard of that approach before. Like you say, it's simple and it seems to be a easy way to learn how to do it. And, you know, there, there will be people who are too good for that, but there's lots more people who call themselves intermediate improvisers who can't do the simple stuff really well mm. and that's what makes the biggest difference in how good you sound when you improvise doing the simplest you know michael going back to michael brecker he probably had more facility on that instrument than you know or as much facility as anyone that's ever played it i mean you listen to him and the brecker brothers and it's jaw-droppingly technical but then you hear him with you know paul simon and he's playing a simple major triad long notes yeah. something beautifully melodic and there's there's the lesson there you know you you can have all the facility in the world but if you don't know how to just pair it back and play something that fits the music it's it's wasted really 
Last question, Jamie. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? That's a good question. Well, Johnny Howard always said to me, the money's on time. In other words, never be late for a gig. Turn up, look smart, be prepared, know what you're doing. Don't get drunk. Well, not until after, at least. <laughs> so I always remember him saying that, you know, the money's on time. So that's that's the first piece of business advice. Put some money away for tax. <laughs> the money's not all yours when you earn it. That's really good business advice. And I suppose in more recent times, the number one thing that she's stuck with me is if you're if you're trying to you know, sell something to somebody, don't sell them the thing. Sell them the transformation that they're going to experience with that thing. Because it's a much more pleasant experience for them because they then get to go within themselves. And, you know, if you say, oh, imagine how, how great it would feel if you could go up to your local jam session and instead of sitting at the bar, you know, fretting, you could go up there, get your instrument out, open it up, Go up on stage. You don't have to worry what they're going to say. They could say, hey, do you know, uh, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll do it, you know. It puts that person right in that experience for themselves, which is fantastic. It shows them what's possible. So in terms of this whole kind of selling courses thing, I, that's my my most powerful thing I've learned through, you know, Jeff Walker's stuff and, and others who've who've taught me. Let people see that their life can genuinely improve with what you've got to offer. And don't just don't just show them the features of what you've got. This is, you know, 10 court, this is 10 videos, there's 22 hours, there's uh, 100 PDFs. Nobody cares. Yeah. They might care, you know, somewhere down the line, but people want to see, you know, I guess in your industry, if somebody recorded their band and they kicked out this great mix and they heard it on the radio, they're like, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe I'm hearing my mix on the radio for the first time. If you can, you know, show them that that's possible for them. I think that's a really, that's a really awesome thing that inspires me to keep, you know, making the courses I am and hopefully people keep buying them and genuinely experiencing that, you know, genuinely expect, because one of my students even said that to me, he said, you know, I went up to play a gig and, and um, somebody said to me, wow, you know, that's, don't normally get players that good coming up here to play. And he's like, wow, what? <laughs> yeah, that feels I think good. That's a really it's a really good special feeling. So that's that's my advice. You know, show people what's possible for them. You can find out more about Jamie and his courses at getyoursaxtogether.com. That's get your together, all one word dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Yeah.